Hi, and thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Montramani hosted on June 18th, 2021 with Diane Hessen. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I am uh, really excited today to have Diane Hessen with me uh, to join me for a conversation about her forthcoming book called Our Common Ground. Um, and we're gonna get into that, but before we do, let me quickly run through some of the, uh, the, the traditional advertising that I do at the beginning of each of these webinars. So um, as, as many of you know, last week I had Hakeem and Rashan. Um, Hakeem is the author of a book called Menace, China's colonization of the Islamic world and Uyghur genocide. Um, and her, uh, sorry, excuse me, his wife, Wushan, who is a Uyghur dissident who runs the campaign for Uyghurs. I would suggest this is probably one of the most important conversations I've ever had. Uh, and I would encourage all of you to listen to the replay if you haven't heard it. Uh, they described a Chinese Communist Party that is being aggressive. Uh, Hakim actually analogized it to the, uh, to the Nazi regime uh, and of Germany and said there is an absolute genocide underway. He connects it to the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, following this conversation, Rashan uh, testified to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Secretary Blinken's uh, been, been tweeting about Rushan's sister who was abducted by the Chinese Communist Party, et cetera. My point is it's worth paying attention to what's happening there. Uh, this uh, replay of this conversation I think is well worth your time. And of course the book is as well. Um, so apologies for taking too long on that. But before that we had Bjorn Lomborg. Uh, Bjorn, uh, one of these Time 100 most influential people wrote a book called False Alarm uh, that came out a little while ago, but really logical, thoughtful, not a climate denier, uh, but said very clearly that hey, we have multiple priorities of which climate is one and how we address it is really important. Uh, and we don't want to risk economic development, human flourishing uh, in an alarmist way. So uh, again, a, a really nice conversation. Uh, Grant Williams, friend of mine who writes a financial newsletter, was on before. Uh, you know, we talked about inflation, deflation, commodities, gold, stock market bubble, Federal Reserve, etc. Uh, you know, a, a nice very wonky financial <laughs> conversation. Uh, before that, we had Chad Foster, who went blind when he turned 20, uh, and sort of the inspiration that, that he found in that endeavor and his work at Harvard Business School and subsequently, and sort of how he found meaning and purpose and continues to live, including skiing, et cetera, uh, despite having lost his vision. So a sort of personal inspiration story. And uh, we had Mike Rogers before that. Mike, former uh, congressman, former chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Mike is the guy basically who uh, determined that Huawei was a risk to US national security and went about convincing the United States, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand that uh, this was a risk and we needed to worry about uh, 5G and what it might mean for technology and surveillance and national security. Uh, so those were the guests so far, the summer series, so to say. And then of course I have uh, my book, which I'd love to promote. So again, think for yourself if you haven't gotten it, it's available everywhere. So um, with that said, apologies, Diane, for taking your time through that little litany of prior guests this over the last couple of weeks, but, uh, but thank you for joining me. Um thrilled to be joining you. And um, I I'm, was really interesting to hear all of those other guests. I'm in great company. Yeah. Well, you know what, what I've tried to do, Dan, is always, and in fact, I think it's partially related to the spirit of your work. Uh, I've always tried to get different perspectives. I think I don't understand every perspective. One of the messages in my book is, uh, you know, every perspective is limited every perspective is biased and therefore every perspective is incomplete. Mm -hmm. So what's a better way to understand the world? Get multiple perspectives, empathize, see other people's point of view. Uh, so before we begin, um, I would, I'm going to introduce you very briefly, but I'd love you to introduce yourself probably more thoroughly. So the way I came across Diane, for those listening, uh, is uh, if you remember, I had hosted Joan Williams, who had written a book called White Working Class, which I thought was pretty interesting to help me understand the political environment. Uh, because of that book, I decided to dig deeper into uh, voter dynamics in the United States, uh, the causes of polarization, the problems of polarization. And very quickly, if you do that type of work, you stumble upon 
Diane. And you find out about Diane's work. And then I realized she had a book coming out. And so I reached out to her. We've had a couple conversations and uh, her book is being released next Tuesday. Uh, it's called Our Common Ground. And I've read a copy of it and I think it is absolutely fabulous. It's refreshing, it's balanced, and it's well worth your time. So, uh, but that's how I came across Diane. But Diane actually uh, is, a, I would call you a executive slash journalist slash voter expert slash board, multiple board <laughs> members. Let me let you introduce yourself, Dad, because I don't think I can do it justice. No, that was great. I mean, you know, I, what you learn is as you get older that um, you have so many chapters in life. And um, I spent most of my life as an executive I, um, and as an entrepreneur, but you know, serendipity shows up and one thing leads to another. And, you know, all of a sudden you're a journalist or all of a sudden I'm an investor or a board member or whatever else. So um, yep, it, it's great to have all of that. So did you think you'd have this kind of journey when you were growing up? I mean, was, uh, was, a, was a three-year-old Diane running around the playground saying, well, you know what, I'm going to be a board member of banks and I'm going to be a, a CEO of an incubator. Like, or what, did, what did the three-year-old Diane think she was going to be? Oh, you know, I never had any idea. In fact, it's so funny that you asked me that, Vixen, because I just did a podcast a couple of weeks ago uh, on a, that was going to be that was completely different from what we're going to talk about today. I was with a, uh, a guy named uh, Chuck Allen who has a podcast called Cool Change, and he, he all of the stories are about people who made big changes in their lives, so people who are interested in career change, etc. And um, we spent most of the podcast talking about that. But I never knew what I wanted. I um, grew up with a younger brother who knew he wanted to be a doctor from almost the day he was born. Mm-hmm. You know, he's two years old, walking around with a stethoscope around his neck, became yeah. a surgeon, did the exact same thing uh, for, you know, and, and still is a surgeon these days. And, you know, I always hated him for that because I thought that everyone was like my brother everyone was super clear on what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I was never clear. I was always undecided about my next step. And what I learned through that is that there's actually a benefit to not knowing because when things show up, um, instead of just looking straight forward and doing that one thing, you can kind of look to the right, look to the left and, you know, jump onto something else. So my, um, my career has been multi-varied, just, you know, lots of different things. And the, everything leading up to uh, the research project that I did for my book was also completely serendipitous, which I'm happy to get into. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, as you can see, I keep in my office a fox, uh, which is to symbolize the generalist logic, right? And I've been a big believer of liberal arts education and sort of promoting multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I wouldn't call myself an expert basher per se, but 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 I definitely value those who see breadth of experience and perspective. And I think that they are probably um, more often than not, uh, I would argue, open-minded uh, in the sense that they know they're not the expert on anything, if not everything, and therefore are happy to listen more, right? So so that's a little bit of my, uh, my background. So what I wanna do, because I think it'll be fun is to just, pick one thing on your resume and have you explain how you got to it and where, where it fits. Into the, so you're on the board of Eastern Bank, for instance. Mm-hmm. How'd that happen? Well, I am on eight boards and somebody was asking me the other day about how I got onto those boards. And what I realized is that for every single one of those boards, it was someone from my network calling me and saying, are you interested in doing this? Yeah. Um, the first board I was ever on in my life, this is probably in the mid 90s. Um, I had written another book and this was a business book. It was all about how to grow your company by focusing on your customers. It was called Customer-Centered Growth. And I'm in my office. I was running a company at the time, my phone rings. And um, it's a friend of mine that I went to business school with named Oi Lee. And he says to me, Diane, I'm in the Hong Kong airport and your book is in the bookstore here. And I just bought it and read it. Yeah. And you need to be on my board. And I said, oh my gosh, Oi, what's your board? He said, well, I bought, I just bought Crabtree and Evelyn. 
Oh. And I said, really? Like, boy, did you buy, you bought one store? He goes, no, 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 no. I bought all the stores. <laughs> the whole thing. And, you know, I mean, at the time, Crabtree and Evelyn, I don't know if all your listeners know what it is, but at the time there was kind of, there was Crabtree and Evelyn was the, the predecessor to um, Bath and Body Works and the Body Shop and lots of these places where you can get great creams and, you know, lotions and perfumes and everything else. And he said, we're completely unfocused on our customers and you need to join. But, you know, that was where I really cut my teeth on learning how to be a board member, how to, you know, be strategic yeah. on a board, not jump in and how to, you know, and, and all the way through, there was always someone I knew calling me and saying, you know, are you interested in this? So just one of the many, many reasons it's worth cultivating your network and, yeah. you know, staying in touch with people, you know, who touched your life. Well, it's also that you don't make an assumption as to where the opportunities are going to come from, it sounds yeah. like, right? It's just sort yeah. of almost a genuine, authentic communication with people on the basis of what works for that relationship and what comes of it comes of it sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer your question, Eastern Bank was um, a friend of mine. They were looking for somebody who had, you know, marketing skills, kind of go-to-market skills. A friend of mine suggested to Bob Rivers, who's the CEO, you know, you should meet Diane. She might be a good fit. Bob and I had lunch. Yeah. I asked him 1,000 questions. <laughs> um, I didn't really know whether it, being on a bank board would be for me. He kind of convinced me to come on. I was like, mm, all right, maybe I'll do this. I wasn't like jumping up and down. And now I absolutely love the board. Oh, great. It's a spectacular board. It's a really well-run bank. We just went public. Yep. And um, I've absolutely, I mean, I've loved that experience. So who knew? And he always teases me about it saying, remember in the beginning, you weren't really jumping up and down about doing this. You know, you kind of thought you'd, you'd see what it was like and, you know, maybe you'd like it, maybe you wouldn't. And, you know, we do laugh about that because it's really a wonderful organization. Yeah. So the last tidbit of your background I want to talk about before we turn to the book and, and sort of the topic of the day is you also ran a, effectively an incubator. You've been around uh, sort of startups, you've been a CEO, et cetera. Um, the transition from that towards all these other things, not necessarily obvious. Uh, and then relating to that, to transition from being a CEO into having Hillary Clinton call and say, hey, uh, Diane, I need to understand these voters. Can you help? <laughs> the sort of going from, I mean, I know you had a market research bent to it already of trying to understand, but that transition sort of not obvious to, to lots of people. Sure. So Basically, I've spent most of the last 20 years in CEO jobs, you know, mostly as an entrepreneur. And the biggest company I built was a tech company called Communispace. It's now called C-Space, but uh, we built Communispace as a next generation market research company. So using the power of the internet to help major brands understand their consumers in real time. I always call it focus group on steroids. So why have 10 people in a room for an hour when you can have access to hundreds of your target customers whenever and wherever you need their advice and feedback. Um, the company got big, we sold it, but I absolutely loved uh, being in the market research space and helping organizations really walk in the shoes of their consumers. Mm -hmm. um, I was running another company and in the spring of 2016, I didn't get a call from Hillary Clinton, oh, I <laughs> uh, but I got Clinton. a call from a friend uh, who was working for her. Uh, who I knew from my market research days, who was a well-known pollster, and he was running strategy for her. And he basically said that the campaign had a ton of data about what was going on, but less understanding of why, and he wanted to see if I had any ideas. And we talked for several hours on the phone, and I just got really hyped up about, oh my gosh, you, you could do the same thing with voters as I've done for the last 14 years uh, with customers. And he asked me if I was interested in helping them with a special project to understand undecided voters in swing state. And I couldn't resist. I left my CEO job. You know, I gave my board 90 days notice and um, I, you know, I left managing all these people and, you know, being in that kind of thing to moving into my home office mm -hmm. and sitting on the phone, you know, trying to recruit 
uh, a group of voters and using the same technology I had used with brands at C-State. And um, it was an extraordinary experience. Um, you know, I do the same thing like every Tuesday morning, I would send a note to the Clinton campaign saying, you know, here's what I've learned. And sometimes they'd say that's really interesting. And sometimes I'd hear nothing, but, you know, we went through everything. And, you know, when the campaign was over, um, when the election was over, I figured I'd take another CEO job. And um, while I was interviewing for a couple of positions, I decided to put a capstone on my project. And I wrote an op-ed for the Boston Globe about what I'd been doing and what I learned and what I thought it meant. It was called Understanding the Undecided Voters right around Thanksgiving of 2015. And in that piece, I explained that my undecided voters who switched to Trump did it based on one event more than any other. And that was when Hillary Clinton said you could put half of Trump's voters into a basket of deplorables. I mean, the voters on my panel just went crazy and my op-ed went viral. And suddenly, you know, on CNN with Jake Tapper, I'm being interviewed, the phone's ringing, I'm talking to newspapers, I'm talking on television. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm making more of a difference after the election than before. And so I became a CEO dropout. I mean, instead of taking another <laughs> CEO job, I decided then to join some additional boards and start an angel investment, investment company and just set up my life so that I could keep talking to voters. So in December of 2016, I recruited an entirely new group of voters, 500 people, all points along the political spectrum, every state, age, gender, ethnicity. And I was off and running and I basically been talking to voters on a weekly basis online yep. ever since that. So, um, and, and obviously, you know, well, I started, whenever I learned something new, I'd write a column for the Boston Globe. Yep. I wrote about 55 columns and it was so weird, just as you say, Vikram, to go from being a CEO to all of a sudden, you know, being a columnist and yep. sitting around and having pressure to write and everything. But at the very end, after the 2020 election, I just felt that I really needed to kind of pull everything together. I was closing down my panel. I was saying goodbye to my voters. Yeah. Every, they're all still writing to me. Yep. I'm telling the Globe I'm not going to write any more columns. The Globe's still saying, you can't stop now. You know, what about voter fraud or, you know, whatever. And so um, that all led to me making a decision that was especially, yep. um, you know, especially straightforward to do during COVID, which was to write a book that kind of summarized my four years worth of work. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great book, but let me ask you something that you know, perhaps it's because I have a PhD and sort of thinking of research methodology, but, yeah. but how do you actually recruit? Mm-hmm. How, do, how did you actually recruit these 500 people? I mean, yeah. you say, hey, I need a minority in Arizona, and then I, you just go find them. Mm-hmm. How do you literally sign them up to be part yeah. of this? I, um, I used a whole bunch of different recruiting techniques that I had learned just because, you know, at CommuniSpace, we were, you know, a brand would say, you know, I want to talk to women who are chocoholics, or I want to talk to, um, I remember once for um, Turtle Wax, we had to recruit a community of, you know, they wanted to talk to 300 ethnic young males who wax their car by hand at least six times a year. We had to go out and find them. I mean, it wasn't me. We had 700 people in the company. So, you know, but I learned a lot about recruiting and um, it was a combination of a lot of things. Sometimes it was, um, I did stuff on social media. Mm-hmm. I did things that were more related to direct marketing. I bought some lists and tried to get people. I, you know, if I needed an extra person in Arizona, I'd go to the Arizona newspaper and I'd read comments by certain people and oh, interesting. You know, find them that way. Yeah. Um, when it when it got down to the end, you know, if I was missing a, you know, if I needed a black person who lived in the Midwest, you know, who was a Democrat. I literally start networking and asking around, does anybody know anyone? Or, you know, some of my other voters actually brought me people. So lots of, lots of different techniques. And then with each person, I interviewed them for half hour to 45 minutes over the phone, just to number one, make sure they were who they said they were and, you know, get a little background. And the other thing that those phone interviews did was that they, 
kind of sent the message to my voters that there was a person on the other end who wasn't going to judge them mm-hmm. and who was really seriously doing this work so they had a chance to ask me a lot of questions and ultimately those interviews were really helpful because i had very high engagement on this panel i mean i'd send out a i'd send out a note to 500 people and i'd get 400 responses at least you know yep. kind of on a weekly basis which yep. is really That's unusual when you're doing research so um sure, yeah it was a great way to build relationships also and you didn't pay them, right? This was not a, I a, did not a, pay them a yeah. thing. Yeah. So this was actually people. It's interesting because I think one of the things you say in the book, and, and I want to let you get into it here, is we need to stop speaking about people and start speaking to people. Mm-hmm. With people. So, or with people, excuse me. Maybe that's what it is. Uh, but you know, maybe elaborate a little on that, man, because I think that's actually a kernel that sort of permeates through a lot of the work you've presented here. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know you're a kindred spirit on this because of the way that you opened up uh, this conversation about listening and everything. But I, I think most of us think we're pretty good listeners. But when it comes to politics, or when it comes to the issues that are in our country that divide us, um, people are not really great at listening. I think they're kind of fed up. But what happens when you know, you're, let's say you're a Democrat and you're saying, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that there are 35 million people in the United States who think that the November 2020 election was fraudulent. How can that possibly be? And if I introduce you to somebody who thinks that there was fraud, for the most part, what you're probably going to do is you're going to hear that person say there's fraud. And then because you're so smart, you're not going to say, tell me more. Where did you learn that? What's behind that? Blah, blah, blah. What you're gonna do is to say, you know, 60 out of 61 judges threw out the cases, you know, the the fraud cases, you know, 60 out of 61, 60 out of 61, we come armed with our data and our articles and our videos. And we say, I know you think there was fraud, but 60 out of 61. 60 out of 61. And the irony is that I've never met one person who thinks that the election was fraudulent who says, oh my gosh, I never heard of 60 out of 61 judges throwing the case out. They've all heard that data and it hasn't changed their minds one bit. Mm. And so the challenge is we want to turn down the heat. Mm-hmm. If we want to stop or some of the insanity going on in our country is to say, tell me more, right? I mean, you have such a different perspective on all of this than I do. Help me understand how you're thinking about this. And I think what you're getting at, which is probably the uber issue that all of us feel as Americans uh, and those that are outside of America that might be listening to it, that they notice about America is just the extreme polarization, right? Uh, Someone says left, the other side says right. Someone says up, the other side says down. Someone says in, the other side says out, et cetera. And it's just almost habitual at this point, right? So let me ask this, because a lot of folks now use these virtual formats to consume their information. Oftentimes, social media ends up being a major source of the information they get. Yet you've written about, I've written about, others have written about the idea that consuming information in this virtual format, and you know, I still read magazines. You can't see in my office here, I've got magazines, physical magazines, because Mm -hmm. I flip them, because it forces me to see different topics by flipping them. But if we tunnel into the sources of information that the algorithms want us to like, or that we've demonstrated we liked, and then they feed us more because we're more likely to click on, how important is that? I mean, is this a major explanatory variable, i.e. social media, in our state of polarization? Oh, I think it is definitely. You know, look, one of the things that I write in the book and I try to give zillions of stories about this, is that our perceptions of each other are wildly inaccurate. 
Um, I'm happy to talk about that a little more. But one of the reasons that our perceptions of each other, you know, if you ask a, well, I'll give you a couple of examples. I'll, I'll give you the long, uh, the long answer uh, to this story. So if you ask most Republicans about Democrats, they'll say, oh, let me tell you about Democrats. They're a bunch of elitist socialists who want to take my hard-earned tax dollars and give them away to illegal immigrants, criminals, and people who are too lazy to work. And they want to take away my guns and allow women to have abortions and birth control. And more recently, they're, they want to completely dismantle policing. Like, that's who the Democrats are. Now, anyone listening to this podcast who's a Democrat would say, no, 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 that's not me. But that's how a Democrat is perceived. And if you ask most Democrats about a Trump supporter, they'll say they're a bunch of, you know, hypocritical, uneducated deplorables who sleep with their guns and refuse to wear masks and deny that climate change is happening and never met a Black person they liked. And both of those narratives are wrong. Um, and yet these stereotypes were on the ballot in our country and they dominate our perspectives today. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons they dominate our perspectives is that the extremes get the airtime. So if you're Fox News or CNN, MSNBC or whatever, it's just not that interesting to tell a story of you know, some regular person just kind of getting through their day. But if they tell a story about white nationalists doing something outrageous or anybody doing something outrageous, that gets the eyeballs. And so the extremes are getting the airtime. And then on top of that, to get directly to your question, the extremes get the airtime on the news. And then all of those extreme stories get amplified on social media again and again and again. And, you know, we all live in our own social media bubble. So I think social media and its ability to spread the word among you know, everyone's circles does lead to the point where we have a completely inaccurate understanding of each other. And yeah. it's sad and it's frustrating. Well, so what, so what do we do? I mean, you're suggesting, and I tend to agree, Dan, that we, because of social media, we're creating these echo chambers, right? So people just hear their own voices. They hear it back to them. They find things they agree with. They click, share, like what they agree with. Mm -hmm. That gives the algorithm more incentive to give them more of what they know they agree with. Mm -hmm. It sort of snowballs out of control. And eventually that's their perception of reality, even though it's yeah. just a, some small segment of reality. How do we- Yeah, definitely. How do we fix well, that? Well, look, I, you know, I'm- I'm hopeful on this. I think that at some point people will get more and more sophisticated about what happens when you Google something and how you tell whether something is true and you know all of that. So I, I think that there are people who are predicting it's going to get worse and worse and worse, but we are all learning, for instance, how to read something. And if anything sounds a little off, to be able to look things up and investigate or go to Wikipedia or go to Snopes or call a friend or, you know, whatever to say, I mean, we've learned uh, that we could be skeptical of what we're reading. And I think that we all, I mean, everybody always says that kids need to learn how to do this, but it's not just the kids. I mean, I think we all need to approach what we read with some level of healthy skepticism and say, how do I become really, really skilled you know, at understanding all of this. Now, I'm not sure that's everything. So if you, um, if I go back to the voter fraud example, yeah. if you talk to people who believe there was voter fraud, this is not, you know, this is not, quote, stupid people who just love Donald Trump and want him to be president. Most of the people who believe there is voter fraud tell me that they have done extensive research on this. They have their facts. They have video of a local leader. They have um, a video of somebody submitting an affidavit. They have article after article after article. You know, so it's not this frivolous thing like I'm just in the mood to think there's fraud, but there is huge. I mean, you, if you pretend that you believe there's fraud and you just go online and start Googling articles about this, you'll see that there, it looks like there is a tremendous amount of data out there about that. 
So look, I don't know how we fix this problem other than to shut up and listen. Yep. I yep. just, I just don't know. And if I just stick with voter fraud, since um, I've been yep. talking about that, if you listen really hard to people, number one, they believe that they have done their homework. Number two, I would say that of all of the issues related to fraud, the one that they believe is the most problematic is mail-in voting. Mm-hmm. Particularly mail-in voting where you don't have to prove who you are. Yeah. Now, you know, so um, let me just come clean here. I'm a Democrat. You can, well, you, of course, you already know I'm a Democrat because I worked on the, on the Clinton campaign. But um, for the last four and a half years, I have made friends with a whole, you know, with hundreds of people who think differently than I do. And I will tell you that their issues related to mail-in voting make them feel skeptical. And when we dismiss those issues and say, you don't like mail-in voting, then that's voter suppression or whatever. We're missing the point that they're trying to make. And I have found that if you push hard and probe, both Republicans and Democrats, many, most Republicans and at least half of the Democrats that I talked to perceive that there are significant problems with our voting system. Mm-hmm. They see something happen. They, uh, they have a kid that left five years ago for college and the kid's ballot is still coming to their home. Or they change where they're registered to vote and somebody from their old neighborhood says, you know what, Vikram, I saw you on, you know, I know you moved, but I saw you. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to actually vote twice. But people see administrative errors, lags in the system, whatever. And I think, you know, and everyone, and of course, millennials feel that our voting system is so outdated, they can't believe that we're voting on paper. So there's a lot of angst in the country about voting and lots and lots of ideas on how to improve the process. And if one side just screams fraud, and the other side just screams voter suppression, we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of what I mean by listening. It's not getting to the point where you can understand someone and say, ah, well, now let's be friends. It's really trying to get to the root cause of where a lot of the problems are. And what I've learned, which could make people hopeful, is that much of the time when you get to the root cause of what's going on for people, it's actually not as despicable and deplorable as either side thinks it is. Sure, sure. Well, one of the ideas I think you put in the book about how we can overcome this social media echo chamber dynamic is to diversify your media consumption diet, I think is the phrasing you use, which I love because I've always said, just get multiple perspectives, but that's far more eloquent to talk about yeah. a diversified media diet, right? Uh, I think it's, uh, I'm going to borrow that in the future, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are people I know who will religiously and only watch Fox News. Mm-hmm. There are people I know who will religiously and only watch MSNBC. Mm-hmm. And I've said to both of them, turn on the other channel, please. I'm not asking you to agree with it. I just want you to see what other people potentially perceive from the similar mm-hmm. fact pattern. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, there's each perspective is biased, limited, incomplete, therefore get more of a. Yeah. What do, you, what do you mean by media consumption diet and diversifying it? Is it that, or is it broader? Is it, how do I think about that? Well, I think it's good if you can bear it. I think it's good to listen to the other side occasionally. Now, the difference is most voters are not like, you know, if you're a Democrat, most voters are not like Sean Hannity. They're not, I mean, you know, Democrats don't want to watch Sean Hannity because they think he's insane. And I kind of think he's insane also. I mean, he's an entertainer. But most Republicans are not Sean Hannity, right? And so varying your media consumption habits just means that you can listen to what, just make the assumption that you've got like a normal, sane person who happens to be a Republican, but who's listening to Sean Hannity spewing stuff all the time, you can start to see how it would change people's minds. Mm -hmm. And so I think it gives you, I don't think it's listen to Fox News or listen to MSNBC so that you can understand the other side but you can listen to those to understand how people could feel that they are educated and have checked their facts yep. and are just 
don't really like your facts. I think that's part of it. You know, yeah. there are lots of things that I tell people to do. I um, uh, One of my voters who I talk about uh, in the book is a Republican from Texas. And I literally, uh, last fall, the Boston Globe asked me if I could get one of my voters, preferably a Republican, to write a column uh, for the op-ed page uh, about what he thought about whether it was possible to unite the country. And we had, in the Globe, we had a page of like eight different voices on whether unity was possible. This guy, Joseph, was one of them. He wrote the op-ed and a local Brookline, Massachusetts uh, woman wrote to the Globe and said, I thought that that column was fascinating. Is there any way that I could talk to this guy? Yep. And we put them together. And one of the reasons that Joseph thought it would be interesting to talk to this other woman, Aviva, is... Um, he said, well, I live down in Texas and my views of what is going on at the border here and what needs to be done are affected by where I physically live. And I bet her immigration views are different because you know, she lives in the Northeast, far away from any border. And uh, so that was what he was curious about because immigration is a very, very hot issue for him. Yep. And so, and uh, I, I tell in the last chapter of the book all about their conversation and uh, how well they ended up getting along with each other and what they talked about. But I thought it was interesting because the other thing you can do is you can travel, right? You can get out of your physical bubble and you can go to the border, you know, or go to wherever else yeah. people might be that just kind of think differently from you and realize that sometimes literally just where you live changes yep. your perspective on the world. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh... Joe Nye, the former dean of the Kennedy School, who I've gotten to know a little bit, he, he always says, if you not, want to know where someone stands on an issue, look at where they sit. Right. Um, and he was doing that in the, in the context of diplomatic decision making, right? Sort of, he's like, I'm sitting there with President Obama, he's advising, and he said, you know, when we had a geopolitical issue, if the person sat in the Treasury Department, I knew where they stood on the issue, right. because it would say sanctions. And if mm -hmm. the person was in the Pentagon, he'd say military action. If it was the State Department, it was diplomacy, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I do think that actually some uh, understanding people's context may help you understand why they feel the way they do. So let me twist gears for just a, a second here, Diane, and ask a fun question, which is, do you have a favorite movie or a movie you'd recommend to us uh, that oh. might be uh, sort of fun or a mini series, doesn't have to be a movie. I know every, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd love to hear if you have any suggestions uh, on that front. And then also I'm gonna ask you about a favorite book um, or, um, uh, you know, Obviously, we, we will, of course, recommend yours, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but talking about, you want to know about fiction. Yeah, something I mean, fun, like, yeah. Yeah, so my, I, I'll answer that uh, just because it's on my mind. So um, my favorite book of all time is Noble House by James Clavell. Okay. It's a long, you know, thousand page tome with zillions of characters. Uh, it's a historical novel uh, that is, um, that takes place in Hong Kong. Okay. Um, James Clavell wrote a bunch of historical, um, yeah. everybody knows Shogun and everything I like, yes. Noble yes. House even better. And it's okay. funny, I read it in the uh, mid 1980s and I loved that book so much that when it was finished, I was literally crying because I didn't want to say goodbye to the characters. Yeah. And I read it again during COVID. So oh. um, yeah, yeah so that's my good. favorite book. I have, um, I have a lot, I read a lot. So, and I read a lot of fiction because um, like many of the people who are listening to this, I'm trying to watch less TV yep. and <laughs> less on the news shows and just, um, you can- Yeah, well, that's a great suggestion. Lost in fiction. Um, and what was the other one? Movie, oh, movie. movie or miniseries, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. One of my favorite movies of all time is a little known movie with Gwyneth Paltrow called Sliding Doors. Sliding? Sliding door. Doors. So hmm. here, is, here is the deal on Sliding Doors because it relates to what we were talking about a little earlier. Um, movie opens, there's Gwyneth Paltrow. She's got a backpack. She's running through the streets of London. She gets to the underground, the subway, and she goes flying down the stairs, runs up to a train. Uh, the doors close in front of her. And she bangs on the door 
and they open again and she gets onto the train, goes home to face something at home. And then the movie starts all over again. And there she is, Gwyneth Paltrow running through the streets of London, gets to the underground, goes flying down the stairs, runs up to the train, doors close, she bangs on the doors, they don't open, and mm. the train moves on. And then the movie shows what happened in her life just because of whether that subway door opened ripple. or didn't yeah. open one little thing. And I think that's the most, one of the most profound things because it's the story of my life. It's the story of so many people's lives. It's the reason that I'm sitting here with you talking about a book that I wrote because I just happened to, you know, somebody called me and I picked up, up the phone, phone <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm quitting my job and moving on to something else. But, uh. you know, I, I think the unplanned, you know, those serendipitous moments are the things that really shape our lives. And if you believe that, if you believe that story, that who you sit next to on the plane, whether the subway door opens can change everything, then the implication of that is that you have to set up your life so that serendipity can happen sure. as sure. much as possible. So I thought it was a good movie. You know, it was not... Um, you know, it, it was not like one of the greatest movies of all time in terms of Academy Awards, but I love the message that it sends. Awesome. Yeah. Great suggestion. It's funny over the course, I guess I, perhaps because I started this uh, webinar series and the, the podcast during COVID, um, you know, I, I started asking guests because I was curious, what are, you, what, are you, what, are you, what are you reading? What are you watching? Yeah. And, you know, well, I, series, I mean, series, there's so many great series, right? You have one that you like? Oh, there are a bunch. Yellowstone, Peaky Blinders, Bauda. Yep. I watched a great one um, that was um, Spanish. Oh, I can't even remember about um, about a family that owns a hotel that was unbelievable. Yeah. But right now we're watching Formula One. It, oh. You know, it's three seasons of you yep. know watching the drama of what's happening in Formula. I mean, there's just such amazing content right now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. But I, I started, I surveyed, I, I don't have the market research savvy you do, but uh, I did reach out to all the listeners and the thousands of people that had watched the, the webinars last year. And I said, what have you enjoyed? What have you disliked? What's useful? Mm -hmm. What's bad? And a lot of people said, we appreciate the authentic diversity of views, the lots of different people with different backgrounds. But what we really love were the book and movie suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, that's great. I'll keep asking. That's fine. Isn't that that's funny? what works. That's what Isn't works. That funny? Well, you know, oh, and there's another one called Line of Duty, which is one of the first things that my husband and I watched during COVID. Line of Duty is a British show and hmm. it's actually like the most popular British television show of all time. It's about um, like an internal affairs group of cops, I feel like yep. the people who investigate the cops. Yep. And there were five seasons and we absolutely love this thing. And then of course it ends. And my friend who had recommended it to me just sent me a text saying season six is out. It's about to start. It's written. Oh, it's, so it's on PBC. We can't get it. But like now we're waiting for it to come. Waiting. in. Yep. And I just heard that now, if you want to see season six earlier than most Americans, you can buy something like called BritBox, which I assume is. Oh, I've heard of that. Some yeah. other new streaming service. And you can actually see season one of it, but it's, um, yeah, there, oh, there's just so much great stuff. No, there is. It's funny. I, so what do you watch? Or did you already talk so about what, what's interesting is during the pandemic, uh, you know, so the class I teach at Harvard is called Humanity and Its Challenges. Mm -hmm. And we talk about a lot of big risks, such as propagation of nuclear weapons, food vulnerability, environment, climate, jobs, technology, uh, pandemic risk, diseases. And one of my friends said, you know what, have you seen the series, The 100 on Netflix? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, you just watch it. So uh, he'd seen it all. It, it, I think it came out long ago, but it literally touches every one of these grand human challenges. I think it was seven seasons of 15 episodes each, more than a hundred episodes. And it was perfect pandemic fodder. Like we just got through it. Uh, my wife and I watched every one of them. We, you know, would, sometimes we'd run ahead by two because she stayed up later. I run ahead. Oh, really? And do you have like, like a favorite it character? It's, you know what? It's interesting. There was this, uh, have you seen it? Mm -hmm. the, the 100? Yeah. Uh, 
I think at times we really loved Bellamy. Uh, and at other times it was Clark, but you know, there was definitely uh, a dynamic at work there that yeah. raised some issues. I was a little disappointed with the ending, but nonetheless. Um, yeah. So let's do this, Dan. We've got, we've got about 15 minutes left. Okay. I want you to see if you can help me uh, understand the big issues. So I think I scribbled down the big issues that you talk about in your book um, mm -hmm. as, and I'll just put them out here, gun control, division, divisiveness, let's say mm -hmm. polarization, whatever, immigration, climate change. And then you actually talk about abortion. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to just, even if it's briefly, because I think you do such a great job in the book talking about them and the different views and Hey, actually hold on people, hold on time out. There's mm -hmm. common ground here, mm -hmm. right? There actually is a common ground. There's a big middle and there's a reasonableness of agreement that we as human beings all can have on these topics mm -hmm. that is lost, that people mm -hmm. aren't hearing about. And I think yeah. that's so empowering and exciting and positive and hopeful and optimistic that I really want to give you an opportunity to take that and share that with us. And then we can come right, back. Yeah, given that's the title of my book, right? No. I must have written about our, sure. I must have written about common ground in there. Yeah. I mean, look, when it comes start, to- I was just say, let's start with gun control. And here's okay. why. I'll give you an example. I interned in Washington, D.C. in the early uh, 1990s. And when I did, I had an opportunity to get to know the former head of Capitol Police. Ridiculously conservative guy at this point. And I remember him saying something that I found quite offensive at the time. And unlike the knowledge now I have where I would ask him, what do you mean, et cetera? He said, oh, my God, gun control, gun control. Gun control is the ability for me to yeah. take out my gun and hit my target when I want to. Yeah. Um, that's what gun control is. I know. And so that stuck with you. And now you assume that everybody, I'm just getting this because I want to read everybody something. Um, yeah. And now you think that everybody feels that way. No, I, so I did. Now in life, I've now gotten, you know, I got myself, I've taken some firearm safety courses. I have an appreciation for it. I understand that actually it's not that way, but I think at the time, and I think a lot of people still believe that. So yeah. help me understand gun control and how there is common ground because it seems binary to me. Yeah. So first of all, let me define common ground. So, cause there is so much more common ground than you, than we realize in our country. What I mean by that is um, I don't mean that we're all have to, you know, we all are in total agreement and alignment. I mean that there are compromised positions on the large proportion of policy where you can get 80% of the people in our country to compromise yeah. on that particular solution. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you might be somebody that's really, really just anti-gun, but you'd be okay with gun control legislation that said the following things. And there are people who own a lot of guns who also be okay with that legislation. So that's what I mean. And the reason, um, if somebody's watching this on video, the reason I just got up is um, on gun control, I started understanding this because one of my voters, who was um, a guy in Arizona named Jim, and I talk about him, he um, is a lifetime member of the NRA. He got his first gun at age Seven. He's owned guns ever since. He takes target practice at a gun club. I asked him about what was happening in Las Vegas at the time when there was that big shooting. He says, we got to get a handle on mental health in this country. So pretty much what you'd expect. And then here's what I wrote. Then he surprises me. So here's what Jim said. All of this said our gun laws need significant improvement. How about removing bump stocks from existence or requiring background checks on all gun show buyers? And he keeps going, he keeps going. Mandatory waiting periods, regulations for ammunition sales, don't sell, don't sell guns to anybody who's on the terrorist watch list, et cetera. And you start hearing that. And you know, you just kind of, if you're if you're on the other side of the coin, you just start breathing a sigh of relief. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had another voter. He's a guy down in Alabama who told me that he has 300 guns. And I remember saying to him, okay, just, you got to help me out here. What in the world are you doing with 300 guns? And he says to me, Diane, 
You told me you have a baseball card collection. I said, I do. I have every Major League Baseball card since 1983, alphabetized and in binders. He says, Diane, what do you do with that collection? I mean, we started laughing. I said, well, I look at the cards. I sort the cards. I talk about the cards. I said, well, you know, that's what I do with my guns. He said, it's just, you don't like my collection. And he said, I'm down in Alabama. I like Baseball is not a thing down here. So I don't know what you waste your time on that for. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's like that. But I thought it was a great example of me going right to what in the world do you need 300 guns for? Yep. And there is common ground. You wouldn't know this by watching our legislative leaders, by the way. Oh, yeah. Because, no. you know, our people are very, very focused on winning their primaries. They're worried about, you know, getting... Um, you know, about somebody coming in who's further to the left or further to the right. And so our politicians tend to get very extreme on things. But yeah, I mean, there is common ground on gun control legislation. And it's crazy that we can't get it passed. Well, let's go there. And from that, you actually transition nicely to this divisiveness topic, which you think is one where there's lots of common ground. Is this... uh, you know, I once had a chance to, to interview a congressman, um, and what I what I did was speaking of movies, I put up a scene from Charlie Wilson's War mm-hmm. on the stage yeah. back pre-pandemic. I put up a big scene, and it's the scene with uh, Julia Roberts is getting dressed. Tom Hanks is in the uh, in the tub, and he's got a glass of scotch in his hands, and she says, "Why is it Congress is saying one thing and doing nothing?" And he looks at his drink, and he sort of takes a sip and pauses and says, well, tradition mostly, um, you know, and it's sort of, we, why can't you get anything done? Anyway, I then asked this congressman uh, from Connecticut and he says, you know, Vikram, it has to do with gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. Most of the general elections are not contested effectively. Mm-hmm. It's the primaries that now matter more than anything else. And if you know that you're going against a person, you're in a left-leaning district, just make sure you're more left than the right. other guy. And you'll get elected and make sure you're more left and you sort of snowball in this way and you snowball on the right, snowball on the left. Next thing you know, you're very, but you're saying there's some common ground here on people don't want that. Yeah. And look, we know this. I mean, if you read, you've read the paper in the last um, month, you know, they say things like we can't get this infrastructure bill through, but 68% of the country thinks it's a good idea. Or we can't get the cap, we can't investigate uh, January 6th, what happened, even though 70% of the country thinks it's a good idea. Those statistics are not wrong. It's just that, again, in Congress, because of what you said, they're just way, way more extreme than the average American. I mean, there are more Americans who are who see themselves as independents yep. than there are either Republicans or Democrats. I mean, there's just a big, mm. there, there is a big group in so do you you think there's a room for a third party here well you know you always i always ask that question but people who know a lot about political parties have told me it's just way 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 too complicated and expensive to start so it's a money thing yeah it's a money and complexity thing just takes a while just like imagine all the assets that a political party has you know members names you know yeah so what about immigration I just want to get through this in a little bit of time. I want to hear your thoughts on immigration. Um, There's common common ground is, yeah, uh, common ground on immigration is basically um, you can get 80% of the country to agree on an immigration bill that gives dreamers a path to citizenship, builds a physical wall in some parts of the southern border, you know, increases humanitarian treatment for arriving migrants, you know, adds some tech at the border, et cetera. And there's an immigration bill that actually does all of that, that was supported by everyone from Chuck Schumer to Lindsey Graham. And? Um, I, I can't remember the, the uh, date, but I do have it in the book, probably five, five, six, seven years ago, and it never got through Congress. I mean, it's just easier to not have the issue resolved because it gives politicians talking points. Yeah, well, I was gonna say, it sounds like the radical socialists that are gonna open the board, <laughs> Let everybody in. I think these are phrases used, right? The radical socials over here or yeah. the sort of racist Trump supporters that want to keep everyone out and or right. what have you, right? So, right. Um, yeah. Uh, but it Definitely. does sound like there's, I think a lot of people would probably say logical immigration makes sense. It's what's made America great. You know, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. having open borders, uh, but it does mean having, 
you know, reasonable control and understanding of it. So yeah, yeah. I think you do a great job of articulating that. Uh, uh, climate change. Climate change. I mean, the most important thing to know is that the large proportion of Americans, so most Democrats and half of Republicans see climate change as an absolutely critical problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes the big divisiveness is just about whether it's man-made or this is just something that's happened. But, you know, when you get right down to it, arguing about whether it's man, whether it's all man-made or not is less the issue than here's what's happening. Is there something that we can fix? And there's way, way more energy in the country to attack climate change than you would think. Mm -hmm. And it's deemed divisive because we have folks who say it doesn't exist, it's fake news. Mm-hmm. That's one side and the other side mm-hmm. wants to, you know, tax everything and kill big business to, to save the environment in a way that may not be logical. Right. Or, is that the extreme views? I, mean, sure. I, don't, I don't actually or know. people what feel that attacking climate change is going to hurt their jobs, you know, their yeah. coal job, their oil and gas job or whatever else, when in fact, it doesn't I mean, have to do that, but it doesn't have to, have to be yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I hate ending on this very last controversial issue, but you have a wonderful story in the book about abortion mm-hmm. um, and how I think you said you had a person who I, I think the, the way it almost read a little bit like a novel rather than a book about voters here. It was sort of like, I got this call, Diane, I need to talk to you. I need yeah. to talk to you. Yeah. Share that story because I think it's powerful and it sort of illustrated to me how both sides really can sort of take the other person's perspective and we can find that common ground. Yeah. Well, I know we don't have a lot of time left, so I won't tell the whole long story, but I'll net it out. And that is that I basically had a very, very pro-life voter um, call me and tell me that he, uh, his daughter had an abortion. His 15-year-old daughter had an abortion. And I was, I was absolutely shocked. And um, after we talked about it, what he said is, look, here's the thing that we spent all our family, it was excruciating. Our family spent all weekend, we prayed about it. We did this, we did that. Um, and what I learned was that a lot of people who are pro-life don't think that a pro-choice person sees abortion as an excruciating decision. I think they see a pro-choice woman deciding to have an abortion as it's a casual decision. It's oh, gee, I'm pregnant, I guess I'll have an abortion, I get pregnant next week, I'll do the same thing again, when in fact, it's not. It was a shock to him that women who have had abortions, for the most part, think of it as the most excruciating decision they've ever made in their lives. And so again, it's just the assumptions that we make. I'm not sure that there's necessarily huge common ground on abortion. It's a very difficult one. This is a single issue that you know, will, I mean, you could dislike everything about a politician, but if he or she is on the right side of abortion, lots of people will vote for that person. But there is ground for way more understanding of how people feel. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's, I think the empathy angle is really important there to understand that even when you don't agree with someone, um, understanding it humanizes it. It's not a basket stereotype of that person is a blank mm-hmm. that person has these views then they have them for these reasons etc and humanizes it so then i'd love to have you close this conversation with something i read in an article about you somewhere and i can't attribute it i'm sorry about something your uh your father uh left you with as a as i don't know if it's a quote but it's a but it's sort of a sentiment and i think it's a w- nice way to wrap this up so um, I think you said something about, uh, you know, why people, uh, I think he said, I don't know if I remember this correctly, so please correct me. But oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Let yeah them, please go ahead and tell it. Yeah. Let them wonder why you didn't speak rather than why you did. Yep. yep. And that, that, <laughs> lines up, that lines up nicely with the idea of uh, it's something else you say in the book, which I think is great, which is, you know, we all have have uh, have two ears but one mouth, and if we right, which we our parents, them, all of our parents told us that, and if we used them in that ratio, maybe we'd be better off uh, and have better understanding. So, anyway, uh, Diane, thank you for taking the time today. I really enjoyed our, 
I really enjoyed our conversation. And for those listening, the, the book is called Our Common Ground. Uh, it comes out next Tuesday. Uh, and I think it is worth everyone's time. It's definitely worth thank reading. You. And I think it's very useful. So again, thank Diane, you. thank you for your time. And I look forward to our next conversation. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 